Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. My name is Adam. Thanks so much for joining us as always. We've got a great show. We're going to be talking about healthcare policy with the knowledgeable and always entertaining Dr. Adam Gaffney. But first, this is our third episode. Got a lot of really great feedback from our listeners. I just want to tell you all how much I appreciate it. Uh, When you set off to do a new venture, it's always really intimidating. And if I sound confident on the mic, I'm totally faking it. I'm actually terrified. (laughs) When self-doubt and fear comes and starts creeping in the back of your head and make you feel like you should be doing something else with your time, It's always nice to see positive feedback from you guys. So please keep that coming in. Uh, You know, the only reason I'm not doing this for me, Uh, I'm trying to promote a certain set of politics and produce uh, a kind of new left wing uh, agenda. And I think this show can contribute to that. Our guests are going to help me do that because I most certainly cannot do that on my own. So I'm glad to hear that you are all enjoying it. Keep the comments coming. Stay tuned for more developments on that front. Some of you have asked me, actually shockingly, how you can donate to the show. Well, my out-of-pocket costs for this show are expanding by the week. Unfortunately, that's just the nature of doing a podcast. It's a little bit expensive sometimes. So I've thought a lot about this. I think I will actually be doing a Patreon. It's going to be, at this point, it's going to be donations only. Uh, so if you want to donate to my Patreon account, which I hope you do, that would be really great if you have that kind of money to throw around, uh, check it out. I'll try to put it in the show notes. Um, you can go on patreon.com and look for Dead Pundits Society. should be able to find it there. Any amount that you can donate on a monthly basis is very much appreciated. And as soon as I can, I'm going to be getting bonus content to my subscribers so that I can sort of pay you back for your financial contribution. So stay tuned for that, I guess, and enjoy this week's show. It's a good one. In the coming months, I hope very much to work with both Democrats and Republicans to reform a health care system by using the market to bring down costs and to achieve lasting health security. But if you look at history, we see that for 60 years this country's tried to reform health care. President Roosevelt tried, President Truman tried, President Nixon tried, President Carter tried. Every time, the special interests were powerful enough to defeat them. But not this time. Welcome back to the show. Joining me today on the podcast is Adam Gaffney. 
or should I say Dr. Adam Gaffney. Uh, he is a physician, a writer, an early stage researcher, as well as a healthcare advocate. More specifically, Adam is an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and a staff physician at the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Cambridge Health Alliance. More importantly for our purposes, he's a tireless advocate for real universal health care, and he serves on the board of directors for the Physicians for a National Health Program. Adam, you must be exhausted. That's quite a list of credentials. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on the show. Sounds worth it. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Absolutely. How, how the hell are you? I am quite well. I'm in New York, and it's a snowy uh, day, but otherwise uh, things are well. Um, although I will say that Paul Ryan's um, health care bill last week um, has left me in somewhat worse spirits. But apart from that, things are well. Well, he's given you uh, a lot of work to do here. You're, you're on a little bit of a vacation in New York City, I hear, and uh, you're being forced to, to, to explain this to the rest of us. <laughs> he has certainly ruined my vacation, I'll say that much, but he's ruining a lot more people's lives, potentially, so I really can't complain. Absolutely. All right. Before we talk about Ryan Care or Trump Care or however this thing, this monstrosity is going to be branded, let's take a couple of steps back. And uh, I brought you on the show because I need you desperately to explain to me just what the hell Obamacare even is in the first place. You know, on the one hand, uh, I, I hear from progressives that this piece of legislation was written by insurance company lobbyists. On the other hand, I've read that insurance company advocates are, are, are whining and crying about how oppressive the act has been over the last several years. So where did it come from? Who wrote it? And, and whose primary interest does it serve? That's a very easy question. I'm just kidding. It actually, it's a complicated <laughs> question. There's a lot. There's a lot of history here, Adam, and a lot of politics. So, I mean, I think one way to think about this, you know, looking at the sort of historical arc, uh, is kind of where what are the roots of Obamacare? You know, mm -hmm. both as a piece of policy um, and from a sort of broader political perspective. And when you look at it that way, um, it is pretty clear that Obamacare has its roots in Republican policy concepts for the most part. When Harry S. Truman was proposing uh, a national health insurance program in the wake of World War II, um, that was more in line with a European-type model, more of a social insurance model, more of a universal uh, health care model. And Democrats actually adhered to that sort of program, uh, which was defeated by McCarthyism and the American Medical Association, and that's a whole other story. Um, Democrats adhered to that for a while, but it was really in the 1970s when they started to abandon that model for more something uh, uh, further to the right. And so you have, for instance, in 1971, uh, uh, Ted Kennedy proposing a very a very uh, progressive health piece of healthcare legislation that would have basically created a single payer system, and um, Nixon basically proposed something pretty similar to Obamacare in order to counter this progressive healthcare plan that he put that, that he had proposed. Hmm. And since then, Democrats have actually taken up the Nixon model and walked away from what was you know once embraced by their party. So. You know, fast forward to 2008, the presidential election, all everybody agrees this is the time to do health care again, to make, you know, to make major health care change. But the assumption is, is that they, you know, from the very beginning, the major players were thinking of this along the lines of a Nixonian plan. And we can talk about kind of what the, the, the core elements of that are. But basically, it involves the subsidization of the private insurance industry in order to expand coverage. And so 
you can talk about the politics and the different players that were involved and the corporate interests, but um, there's no question that Obamacare does two things at once. On the one hand, it is very much um, in line with the interests of the industry, but particularly because it expanded Medicaid so broadly, it did also reduce the number of uninsured um, in a major uh, by a substantial amount. So I think it's hard to reduce it to either nothing more than a piece of you know corporate welfare on the one hand and versus a truly uh, idealistic, progressive piece of healthcare legislation on the other. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. Interesting. So let's rewind just for a minute because it sounds to me like the critical turning point here was in the 1960s and 70s. And this sounds somewhat akin to arguments that have, have come out recently from a friend of the show, Michael McCarthy. I plan to have him on very soon to talk about his fantastic book on the privatization of pension plans. And Mm -hmm. having not fully read the book yet, the argument goes something along the lines of at a certain time in the 1960s and 70s, employers and unions got together to to, to privatize uh, pensions and health care and things like that, which which has, uh, in the name of um, Michael's book, it has dismantled solidarity in the course of that privatization project. And so is that in the same kind of time period that we're talking about here in, in the Nixonian model that you're speaking of? Yeah, I think it was very much over the course of the 1970s that there was a turning point. I mean, and, and I and that's interesting you bring up the pension issue because this is certainly something that we see panning out in a number of different fields and arenas. Uh, you know, Ju- I don't know if you've heard Judith Stein wrote this book, Pivotal Decade, about how um, the U.S. sort of swapped out uh, – the interests of manufacturers for those of finance the 1970s, but it, but I think that you know that term pivotal decade sort mm-hmm. of does uh, say a lot about um, the fact that that, that, that that this was a period when uh, there was a shift and sort of neoliberal shift uh, towards uh, corporate interests, the interests of corporate interest of, of corporate powers. So, yes, in the case of healthcare, I don't think it was so much 1960s as it was the 1970s, because again, mm-hmm. you know, when medic when Johnson passed Medicare and Medicaid. That was seen as what he could accomplish, you know, given the political context at the time. But many people, even, you know, close to the center, saw Medicare as being a potential stepping stone to universal health care. And so, you know, fast forward five years later, that's still a thought. And again, to go back to that, you know, Ted Kennedy's earliest, you know, health care bill, which I think was called the Health Security Act. It was a really progressive piece of legislation, very different than the Affordable Care Act. It was it was supported by unionized um, uh, by organized labor very strongly. Yeah. It actually featured no cost sharing, meaning that you didn't have sort of on a Canadian or UK model. You had no you know for healthcare would be free at point of use, wow. um, and it envisioned a public system that would have covered everybody. He that proposal got watered down over the course of the, the decade, but. That was the early 70s, you know, Democratic plan to some extent. Um, and the Nixon plan, again, was more like the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And, over, and then by the time Jimmy Carter came around, I mean, Jimmy Carter's health care proposal was like, you know, w- w- worse than Nixon's. So um, there was a clear shift over the over that decade in health care thought um, and in health care policy. And there was a, a rightward shift, uh, a neoliberal shift, I think, um, in terms of the way it was um, – what was thought possible. Now, a similar shift had taken place in other sectors and other industries in the, in the late 60s and, and 1970s, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but they can be broadly characterized as uh, the sort of business um, business fight back to the New Deal policies mm-hmm. that had reigned dominant for the for the previous decades. Uh, did we see something similar in the realm of healthcare with the insurance companies? Did they finally 
uh, find their fighting legs after a couple decades of being <laughs> relatively dominated? And, and are we still dealing with the consequences of that today in some sense? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the, the insurance industry rose to, to, to greater power over, over, over the last 50 years. I mean, don't forget, health insurance was originally um, dominated by Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Those are the first real insurers, um, you know, which basically had their roots. And anyway, they had the roots basically during World War II when, you know, wage controls were in place and then businesses found a way to subsidize health insurance and, and get around the wage controls. Anyway, that's all ancient history. But those were the original um, insurers and they were um, nonprofit. Um, I will say they were very much in the interest of the healthcare providers because they were basically the doctors, in, you know, they were basically controlled by doctors and hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't corp- They weren't part of the sort of corporate um, ecosystem in the same way um, that the insurers of today. Now, once that once you know private insurance uh, began to develop after World War II, the commercial insurers came in close behind, and you started having uh, commercial insurers trying to get in on the business. Although oftentimes organized labor uh, was would, would prefer the blues for a variety of reasons. Now, what you see happen in the seventies is again an embrace of a more corporatized model of health insurance. Even so, for instance, Nixon passes an HMO Act that doesn't really do much initially, but over time you do see the growth of the corporatized HMO um, health maintenance organization. And that's given a lot of extra heat and a lot of uh, fueled, given a lot of extra fuel by Ronald Reagan, who does things that makes um, HMOs more profitable. Um, And so over the course of the 1980s, HMOs go from being um, predominantly nonprofit to being predominantly for-profit. And so there's no question that the insurance industry, the commercial insurance industry uh, grew greatly in strength and power. And then in the 1990s, um, the blues started actually converting to for-profits. Mm. So the arc is quite clear. There was a, a, a clear arc towards powerful for-profit corporate um, insurance entities. So so Blue Cross Blue Shield that uh, started out as more of a, a non-profit sort of model uh, eventually was won over to the model that was uh, promoted by the HMOs and maybe tell us a little bit about the who, who these HMOs are and, and exactly what model that looks like I'm speaking as the common man here who they hear HM huh what what'd you just say <laughs> right and so let, let's break this down for for myself and and for the listeners as well exactly I mean I think people a lot of people do have a sense of what an HMO is who sort of were around dealing with health care companies in the 1990s. I mean, we don't really talk much about HMOs anymore, but, but you know, in the 1990s, people, uh, HMOs were this hated entity, right? It's like, you know, um, they were thought of as being these insurance conglomerate, conglomerates that would deny care, turn down people for the care they need. You know, there's, I don't know if you saw the movie um, As Good As It Gets. Um, right, right. Uh, I don't know if that's in, in, in your tastes, but um, <laughs> anyway, there's a scene where, you know, Helen Hunt goes on some rant again at the, you know, fucking corporate HMO bastards or... We interrupt this message to bring you a clip from As Good As It Gets, since most of you millennial bastards aren't old enough to have seen this movie. And come on, Helen Hunt was in her prime. I'm talking the movie Twister, and her primetime TV show, Mad About You. Anyway, we at Dead Pundit Society endorse this message. Standard scratch test, they poke them with a needle. No, I asked, they said my plan didn't cover it and that it wasn't necessary anyways. Why, should they have? Well... Fucking HMO, bastard pieces of shit. Carol. I'm sorry. 
Okay, actually, I think that's their technical name. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they, basically, the HMO, we can go through the history. It kind of goes back a, a long ways. Um, but um, there was this idea. It's actually a progressive incarnation a long time ago. The idea that um, that one basically a group of providers, a multidisciplinary group of providers, would provide all the care for a particular pop base, a population. Um, but basically, that was converted into a much more corporatized model um, in which providers were um, compensated on a per capita basis instead of on a, a sort of fee for service basis, and and that incentivized people to not give care, so to skimp, so to not send people, you know, like in that movie, you know, the, her son doesn't get, you know, the asthma care he needs. I forget the exact details, but stuff like that. It, it became an incentive to deny care and that would make, you know, and the more care that was denied and the more things that were turned down, um, then the more money that the, the company made. Let's go with John Q. How about John Q uh, as, as, rather than as good as it gets? That, that, that's a good, I mean, Denzel, you can't, it doesn't get much better than Denzel, right? <laughs> I, Denzel is great and a huge fan, but I, I actually unfortunately have not seen that movie, so I won't oh, be able to Oh, you gotta watch it. The you cultural, gotta watch it. Um, is, there, is there a healthcare um, plot line Well, the, the, the basic uh, premise is that his son isn't uh, getting the care that he needs, and so uh, John Q sort of uh, takes over the hospital in a hostile takeover over and forces the doctors to provide the care. My son is very sick and he needs some help. I understand. It's hard to be a man these days. Hard to know what the right thing is. But put the gun down, John. You're not hearing me, Frank. My son is sick. That's it. There's nothing else. In the store. When people are sick, they deserve a little help. I am not gonna bury my son. My son is going to bury me. It is funny. As a brief side note, there's a whole string of films that sort of have, have this funny healthcare um, undertone, uh, you know, healthcare justice. I mean, well, my, now I forget the name of it, but there was a um, Matt Damon film from a few years ago. It's sort of like a science fiction film, action film, and he winds up like blasting his way into space uh, in order to like get universal healthcare, basically. It's called <laughs> Ole- uh, uh, Elysian Field, something like that. Anyway. Elysium Fields. Is that Elysium, that, is that, yes. Yeah. Yes, sci-fi. Yes, yes. Yeah, po- yeah. That's the essential premise of it. Uh, I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather, uh, you know, the Bernie Bros uh, usher in universal health care. Going into space sounds dangerous. I don't know. <laughs> it wouldn't be bad to have Matt Damon, though, as, you know, leading spokesman. I'd follow Matt Damon anywhere. I mean, <laughs> in, to the moon or, or wherever else, you know, for that matter. So, yeah, so it looks like, you know, there's a long and twisted road to how we got to the ACA. So bring us up to, um, you know, 2008. Uh, Obama clearly wanted his legacy, a part of his legacy, to be this uh, sort of provision of health care for folks. Um, mm-hmm. Let's start at around 2008 and thereafter and, and talk about how the ACA became a reality and who the stakeholders were in that process. Right. So as I said, you know, in the primary, the Democratic primary for that election uh, before Barack Obama gets elected, um, th- basically all the candidates had are, ha- had more or less agreed upon this more limited version of health care reform with the possible except with, with the exception of, I think, Dennis Kucinich, was, who was still running at that time. Uh, so there had been this sort of overall acceptance that this health care reform um, was not going to take the form of single payer. Um, and there was a lot of people working against that, and, a lot, and that made a lot of people angry, and there was you know, political disobedience, and, but, but that was the reality. Um, and so, um, you know, and Max Baucus, um, you know, who, who was a major player in, in fashioning the legislation, had also made it quite clear that uh, single payer was not going to be the, the, 
reform that they settled on. Now, over the course of the drafting of the Affordable Care Act, and, you know, Stephen Brill uh, has a book called um, America's Bitter Pill. Um, he's a journalist who um, had written this sort of expose on medical billing in time that made a big splash a couple few years back. But uh, he kind of goes through um, this whole process in, in nice detail. And what he makes clear is, you know, what he describes uh, sort of all um, the quote unquote backroom deals that happened over the course of the, the, the drafting of the legislation. I mean, they basically made either explicit or implicit deals with the insurance industry, with the pharmaceutical industry. And so the result, what came of it is this sort of mixed piece of legislation. Again, because it never, because these did not want to embrace um, a single-payer type model. A key component of the Affordable Care Act was that the federal government would subsidize the purchase of private health insurance plans by people who are otherwise uninsured, but they would regulate those plans and they would make, um, they would have more requirements in terms of what they cover, essential health benefits, and so forth. And so that was one key element. And that was similar to what, you know, uh, um, what has been sort of more of a conservative model for a while. Now, in addition to that, they also created the mandates. So people who did not otherwise have insurance needed to buy it. Um, there was a mandate for employers to provide insurance to if they had more than 50 employees. And um, so that was sort of very much favorable to the private health insurance industry because they were going to get a lot more com- customers and they were going to um, get a lot more revenue as a result of that. Right. It's a captive market, in essence, that they were guaranteed as the sort of uh, the, the carrot uh, to, to, to buy into the program. Is that right? Well, exactly right. I mean, people had had to buy health insurance. Now, um, they, you know, um, I think that their orientation towards Affordable Care was mixed. I think they liked some elements. They liked, for instance, the individual mandate, and they liked the subsidies that wound up going back to them. Um, they didn't like some of the requirements that they were, you know, that they had to fulfill uh, in terms of um, the benefits, in terms of the um, the value of the insurance plans, which we can talk about later, but in terms of the percentage of total medical costs that's covered by insurance, which is called the actuarial value. Um, so I think that they, you know, they pushed to get a better deal. But overall, yes, I mean, that was favorable to them. But the other big part of Obamacare, which really has helped a lot of people as well, um, it has been the Medicaid expansion. So, you know, Medicaid traditionally only covered people um, in many states, although it's sort of state by state. But in many states, it only covered people who belonged to certain um, categories of of sort of demographic categories. So it's we think of it as a health public health insurer for the poor or people for low of low income. But in many places, you had to also belong, for instance, be disabled or to be um, a single mother, to be a mother or family with dependent children or to be blind or certain specific categories. Um, Obamacare got rid of that and said all everybody on making up to 138 percent of the federal poverty level uh, had to be insured. And uh, that has resulted in a very big expansion of the Medicaid population. The the Medicaid expansion was uh, touched on at great length uh, during Bernie Sanders' town hall in McDowell County, West Virginia, from this uh, week that was uh, mm-hmm. on MSNBC, I believe, with Chris Hayes. And the Medicaid expansion is wildly popular in rural communities, mm-hmm. many of whom voted for Trump. And so it seems that this expanded Medicaid, as limited as it may be, is a nice little test case uh, to, to gauge the popularity of a universal health care program. Yeah, I mean, certainly. And I think Medicaid ha- Medicaid, and Medicare both have deficiencies, and that's another discussion. But yes, they're popular programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're extremely popular. The more popular than the Affordable Care Act is as a whole. Um, and um, there's no question that many people have benefited 
I mean, Medicare is extraordinarily popular. I mean, you know, Paul Ryan had this whole, well, I know we're going to get into him later, but he had this whole uh, plan of how to privatize Medicare. And his current health care bill doesn't even touch it because I th- I'm thinking he thinks of it as politically toxic and they don't want to even want to get into that yet, at least. Uh, right. But, yeah, Medicaid's popular and uh, it helped many people and um, pre-existing conditions, requirements that you can't be, um, uh, you know, insurance company can't refuse to cover you because of medical conditions. They can't charge you more because you're a woman. They can't charge you more because you have a medical condition. Uh, you know, insurance plans cover pe- children up to age 26. There's a whole um, number of provisions that, that provide incremental gain. But I think that the, you know, one of the biggest gains of the Affordable Care Act was the Medicaid expansion. Overall, if you put it all together, the White House has estimated about 20 million people uh, more are insured as a result of the Affordable Care Act. So again, unquestionably, again, mm-hmm. uh, we can talk about the limitations of that, but um, but there were about 20 million people thought have gained insurance as a result of the Affordable Care Act. Let's talk a little bit about the limitations of the ACA. The, the statistics are, are fairly positive uh, for the, the benefits of the ACA. If you, as you've mentioned, we have millions, millions of more people uh, who have access to health care, um, all of these other provisions that you just uh, laid out. But anecdotally, uh, the, the evidence tells a slightly different story. It seems that premiums are, are, are far too high for the for the the terrible coverage that's offered are very high deductibles, which prevents folks from going to the doctor in the first place. So it sounds to me, we've talked about the popularity of Medicaid and those types of provisions. It sounds to me that the most popular elements of the ACA are actually things that are representative more of say a universal healthcare model more so than an, you know, an exchange market-based model. I would certainly agree with that. And I think there's a couple questions wrapped into there. Um, I mean, first, the inadequ- Let's talk about the inadequacies of the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the ways that I like to think of this is less about things the ACA made worse and more about all of the things the ACA did not accomplish. And I think if we could think of – if we use that framing, then there will be a lot more sort of agreement um, sort of on the progressive left spectrum because many of these things were problems. It's not as though these problems just started now. These problems were there before the ACA. It's just that – the ACA didn't fix them. All right. So let's take uninsurance, for instance. I mean, being uninsured is is horrible, right? People who are uninsured uh, avoid going to the doctor. They avoid going to the hospital. They even avoid going to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though you can't be turned away, it doesn't mean you don't go bankrupt because they send you a you know $5,000 bill, right? So it's a terrible state to be in. And um, there's also a lot of studies showing that if you're uninsured, you're more likely to die. And so, um, you know, the ACA did a lot in a positive direction, but there was still 29 million people, Adam, that were uninsured in uh, 2015. Wow. And the number is slightly lower in more recent years, but not uh, by, by a big difference. And even if it, Paul Ryan's bill never passes, we're going to have between 25 and 30 million people uninsured, you know, on, on going onward for the next 10 years and, and thereafter. So the ACA did not, is not universal health care. It did not get universal coverage even. And then the second issue is underinsurance, which you mentioned and you alluded to uh, referencing the deductibles. And this is something that's killing people all over the place, uh, making, making people very angry. And the Republicans are able to really capitalize on this. Every time you hear Republicans talking about the ACA, they mention the high deductibles. Yeah, I noticed that myself. If you go on YouTube and you search Obamacare high deductible, 
Um, you find a myriad of angry conservative commentators like on Fox News, like spouting off about how Obamacare is going to be really bad for poor people and so on and so forth. Uh, let's go to one right now. This one is from Fox News. Check it out. And one of the original goals of Obamacare, if you may remember, was to get more low-income Americans covered. But it turns out many of those newly insured are finding that, in many cases, the extremely high deductibles are making the insurance too expensive to use. Jim Engel has details. And clearly this is phony outrage because the Ryan Care Trump Care plan is going to make things significantly worse for poor people. Is that right? I mean, they actually like high deductibles. It's very much part of the, the sort of neoliberal healthcare concept is that having skin in the game is important because it turns us into better consumers of healthcare, uh, which I think is insane. But that's a separate issue. Um, but yes, there's been rising deductibles, co-payments. You know, uh, I just read a story today in Kaiser Health News about how cancer patients are going without care, skipping prescription drug medications because they can't afford them. I mean, it's pretty hard to imagine anything more horrifying than that, you know. That's so, um, yeah, I mean, so, yes, yeah, so that's what we are, Adam. Um, uninsurance is still high. We're going to have tw- CBO estimates um, between 25 and 30 million people uninsured forever, basically, even if Ryan Care never passes. Um, underinsurance is bad and deductibles are rising. Um, and so, Those are the things that ACA left undone, among others. There's others we can get into. So it sounds to me that uh, rather than the Republicans sort of squashing a thriving ACA, they're actually sort of uh, giving it a humane death, you might say. In some senses, the ACA has been progressively unraveling over the course of the last several years. Uh, What's behind this unraveling? I mean, we have uh, insurance companies that are backing out of the market in some cases, uh, refusing to offer services in other cases. What what has caused this unraveling? Uh, Clearly, Obama's hopes that this would produce, uh, you know, mass health care for folks uh, has not come to fruition. So what's, what's behind that? The fundamental flaw of the Affordable Care Act was relying on private health insurance companies to bring us to the goal of universal coverage. And it was never going to do that. Um, The fact is, is that insurers are going to stay in the markets that are profitable and they're going to come out of the markets that are unprofitable. That's simply the workings of the free market. Mm -hmm. Um, If they find that, you know, selling insurance in this state doesn't make them money. Um, then they're not going to do it. And so I'm less surprised at these sort of dysfunctions than other people because I think this is just how um, a market and health insurance works or doesn't work, really, more precisely. So um, what's behind it is this was the core This was the core of the plan, the idea that um, if private were uh, entered into this marketplace and they, you know, sort of sold plans and competed against each other. This is called uh, managed competition. And I had an article relatively recently in Jacobin about how, you know, managed competition in some ways is sort of like the original sin of Obamacare. Um, But the the idea that that was going to work, that was going to bring down costs, and that was going to bring universal coverage about was was never feasible. And so I don't know if Obamacare is truly unraveling. I think with additional subsidization, it could probably – stay around for a while. Um, It could maybe stay around forever, but it's never going to get us what we want. It's never going to get us towards – it's never going to reach the goal of universal coverage where everyone has health insurance and everyone has health insurance they can afford to use and they can afford to go – you know, not worry about bills and so on and so forth. Um, And so that's the the, the, the sort of intrinsic, inherent, fundamental problem. 
Right. That article that you, which appeared in Jackman that you alluded to is called Obamacare's Original Sin. It's a really fantastic piece. I'll link it in the show notes so that our listeners can check it out and, and hear more about that. So moving on uh, to the election of Donald Trump has completely changed the narrative. Uh, Hillary Clinton campaigned on uh, the success of the ACA as the sort of uh, touchstone of the Democratic approach that would continue under her presidency. Uh, with the election of Donald Trump, we've seen all of that sort of disappear overnight. He's promised repeal and and replace. The replacement was always going to be a kind of touchy issue, but it's turned out that the repeal has become uh, has been more difficult than perhaps they expected. Republican representatives have been shouted down across the country in town hall meetings, and it's clear that folks, for all of the problems of the ACA, that is, uh, folks are still somewhat wedded to it. So. What are we seeing right now from the Ryan bill um, and what's their strategy? Yeah, I'm not, it's not surprising that people are angry because it turns out people don't like when you take away their health coverage. It's, <laughs> it's surprising, but uh, – Shocker. Shocking <laughs> it's, there. It's a shocker. It's a shocker. Um, all right. So let's talk about the Ryan bill. Uh, best way to sort of just summarize the Ryan bill in like two sentences is – or even shorter – is that it's like Obamacare but worse. That's even five words, actually. I, I did it even in, in, in more, more succinct than I than I thought I could. Hey, I think you have a you have a career as a marketing strategist for the Republican <laughs> Party. I think that that's a hell of a message. Yeah, I'd sign on to that. That would be quite a turn if that happens. Yeah. I don't know. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> it's like this shitty health care you've had for the last four years, but it's actually way fucking worse. <laughs> See, you you have you could have the same career, Adam. You you are going to die in five years under this plan. You may die in two. <laughs> We shouldn't be laughing about this. No, but it's yes, not, it's not it is. funny, but I mean, that, that's just the state of things right now. Yeah, it is. No. So, I mean, that that is sort of how I see it. And I, and I don't mean and what I mean by that when I say it's like Obamacare, but worse, is that um, it perpetuates the sort of core elements of Obamacare. In other words, it, you, there's going to continue to be just to, and I think rather than going through every single provision and kind of talk about some of the big picture stuff, um, you know, as we spoke about, one way that Obamacare reduced on insurance was by subsidizing the private health insurance industry so or subsidizing the purchase of plans by individuals who are uninsured, right? That is, right. some people call that Obamacare, but it's the marketplaces, it's healthcare.gov, it's where you go to buy these plans. The Republicans are basically continuing that, which was already flawed in its own way, but just making it more regressive, better, um, you know, sort of better for wealthier folks, relatively speaking, and um, less adequate for many people to actually cover their premium costs. So it's just like a worse version of uh, a much, much worse, more aggressive version of Obamacare. And then on the other side, so that's the private insurance side. Then in terms of the Medicaid side, they basically are just want to wind it down. So they're going to, uh, starting in 2020, reduce federal funding for the Medicaid program. And because, um, you know, Medicaid's a state federal program, so it's sort of run by states, but much of the funding comes from the federal government. Mm-hmm. They match what states spend. They're going to change the formula by which states get reimbursed. And the details of it are less interesting than the than the overall point, which is that uh, the federal government is going to cut basically the funding of state Medicaid programs. And as a result of that, people are going to lose their Medicaid. So a more, a much worse version of Obamacare. I want to go to a clip really fast of Bernie Sanders' town hall meeting from last week where he talks to a coal miner about the need for universal health care, because I think this is really a test case about uh, the popularity of this program. Let's go to that clip. 
I think we need hospitalization, every coal miner does, to take care of what happens to you underground because it's a harsh environment. Let me pose this question to fill in to other people. We are the only major country on earth, the only one that doesn't guarantee health care to all people as a right. What do you think? Do you think we should join other countries and guarantee health care as a right of all? Yeah, I think every American citizen should have health care. Right, so you should all watch this town hall. Um, It's a really great thing to see. It's a really excellent perspective to get. It's not all good. There's some good and bad. Um, We need to talk a little bit about the environment, right? Coal mining is a a highly problematic industry. (laughs) Uh, We need to move beyond that. Uh, But what is clear is that these people are so reliant on Medicaid. All of the programs they desperately rely on are funded by Medicaid, whether it's uh, opioid addiction treatment, whether it's just simple hospitalization for uh, coal miners, talking about treatment for black lung, just getting your kids uh, to the doctor and, and things like that. It sounds like they're totally reliant on this program. And so, I mean, just I think we can say from the get go that that provision is just going to cause a massive uprising uh, coming from the Trump base, actually, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, paradoxical enough so i mean there has to be a long game right well what is their long game do they think this is this is gonna this is gonna fly in 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 2018 and 2020 in the elections i can't imagine how they think this is going to be good for them politically i think it's going to be disaster politically and then you ask the question why would they do this because knowing that and i would answer i think it is simply about redistributing wealth upward i mean this is going to be a huge gain for wealthy people. Mm. In the Ryan Care bill, they are cutting, you know, the Affordable Care Act had a number of progressive taxes that were used to fund this expansion. Um, they are cutting them across the board, including two big taxes that only applied to people making more than $250,000, one of which was only on capital gains uh, income. So this is unearned income for rich people. Mm-hmm. They are they are cutting, and that is going to transfer. You know, um, there's a New York Times story that reported just looking at people making over a million dollars that they would get more than a hundred billion dollars uh, over ten years. Just tr- this is this is just a wealth transfer. This is basically cutting Medicaid to pass off money to rich people, um, and that's I. So I, I think it's going to be a disaster politically. I, I so I don't quite understand it, but um, but I guess they hope that people don't realize it or forget about it or something of that nature. This is more along the lines of their plan, I guess, I don't know, just to make gated communities and to keep out the riffraff mm-hmm. who, are, who are going to be increasingly uh, you know, dehumanized in that process. We have an opioid addiction uh, you know, in rural America that's just off the charts. Yep. Uh, po- of course, mass poverty. We're deep, deep in, in a yep. long recession here where the, that has not uh, relented uh, for many people in nearly a decade. And, uh, and here we are. And this is going to make all of those problems worse. This is a wealth transfer, uh, an upwards wealth transfer. Um, and, so, and the status quo was already bad, as we've, I think, explored you know, in depth in the show so far. So, um, so it's, it's, it's a bad step down an already bad road, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, and I don't believe in silver linings generally for bad things. I'm not, you know, that's not my sort of political um, uh, perspective generally. Uh, but you have to work with the cards you're dealt, and the, these are the cards we're dealt right now. And the reality is, I think this is going to be a friggin' disaster for the for the Republican Party, or it can be made a disaster. Um, people like healthcare. I mean, if you look at the Gallup poll uh, from, I think it was spring of 2016. Um, 
they found that 58% of Americans were in favor of a federally funded universal health care program. Okay? So the majority of the country is in favor of you know, basically single payer. People support Medicare. People support Medicaid. Um, and the Congressional Budget Office on Monday estimated that the Republican bill is going to increase an uninsurance by 24 million people in a decade from now. Uh, so this is a massive political liability, and it sh- they should be hammered with it, and they can be hammered with it. That being but, but, said, but I got to cut yeah. you off there because we can't trust yeah. the CBO. You know why I know we can't trust the CBO? Because Press Secretary Sean Spicer told us that we can't trust the CBO. <laughs> so just like me, you believe everything <laughs> Sean Spicer says. I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, the man. We, we may be the only two people in the country who are. <laughs> <laughs> the man speaks the opinion. truth. The man speaks the truth. <laughs> he's a happy. He's not a very good press secretary i mean he's so well dressed his suit fits him so snugly and his tie is in no way like awkward and frumpy um he in no way looks like an uh, an alcoholic stepdad uh, who shouts at his children from the couch as he's watching you know reruns of you know the andy griffith show or whatever it's a very explicit um image you've you've felt in my mind about sean spicer now that's why he's my hero (laughs) uh he's a disaster as in, in every respect but yeah i mean that yeah, the CBO. I mean, that, so so this is a liability. I think that, but I, I think that the Republicans are very, um, how should I put this, effective in some respects. They have an agenda. They want to see this agenda done. Uh, you know, this plan of Ryan's. People are like, oh, where did this come from? Why are they doing it so quickly? This is more or less the same plan that he described back in June of 2016. It's watered down from that. So they have been. I mean, in many ways, they have been more effective about this. Than the Democrats were during the Obamacare era, when it took you know forever and there was multiple. They, they, they are sort of a pursuing this with almost a so almost a ruthless precision. And if they were doing something good, I would almost um, I would almost have respect for the tactics. But uh, but I think it's a, a disastrous uh, bill, and I think it's going to hurt people. So obviously, I, I find it abhorrent. Uh, but tactically, I think that they are being effective in the short term. Their message discipline is admirable. I mean, that's something that we'd mm-hmm. love to see from the Democrats. It's one thing that Bernie Sanders uh, has has demonstrated to be almost too good at i mean he's, he's become kind of a caricature for talking about the millions and billions of people and the millions of dollars and the one percent and all that stuff right yeah but keeping it simple keeping it simple has its value you know yeah, um absolutely most people are not political wonks and spending you know 20 hours you know god knows how many hours i spend you know reading news or whatever uh and that's nor, nor should they because it's not really that much fun and they have other important things to do with that do with their lives uh so i think from a political perspective keeping it simple and keep in and hammering one message is actually the way to go right so it's, it'd be a good time now to talk about the the terrible state of the democratic party in terms of capitalizing on what Trump and Ryan are proposing right now. I mean, it's safe to say that they're really just hell-bent on trying to save their sinking ship. Hillary Clinton was hell-bent on, uh, you know, holding up Obamacare as the, uh, you know, democratic policy uh, par excellence in terms of providing for, you know, poor and exploited communities across the country, which turns out to be totally a sham in many cases. Are they really just going to go down with the ship? Or do, you, do we think that the, the Democrats can sort of shift and go into the offensive here? The only way for them to go into the offensive is if they come up with a new proposal. And I think the best thing for them to come up with would be to propose single payer. I think simply paying rear guard defense um, is ultimately a losing game. So I, I would, I think the Democrats should embrace. Um, you know what? I think they should make the argument. You know what? Uh, the Affordable Care Act does have weaknesses, and we need to go beyond it. 
um, and counter the Republicans with their counter the Republicans' proposal with one of their own. If you watch the Ted Cruz uh, Bernie Sanders healthcare debate, uh, you know what was that? I guess a month. Uh, Month or so ago, right. uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, in many ways, did a great job, you know, of of, of uh, describing all the problems of the American healthcare system and so on, um, and he was very effective. But in some ways, he was slightly hamstrung by his need to defend the Affordable Care Act. Now, he believes in a single payer system, and and he was willing to admit um, that the ACA had flaws. But I think if we spend the lesson I drew from that is we need to spend a little less time defending the status quo because the people don't like the status quo. That's I mean, that's the lesson from this last year. Right. And that's the lesson even from Hillary Clinton's defeat. I mean, you know, what is um, you know, the phrase America is already great? What is that other oh, than an embrace of the status quo? Uh, and people are suffering. And, you know, if you want to make the point, well, these problems predated the ACA, fine. But people care about where they are now. And where they are now is that they have no insurance oftentimes, or they, or they have insurance that's not good enough, or they have high deductibles, or their insurance doesn't actually cover doctors in their area, or they're on Medicaid, and they, that's very good, but they often get treated, uh, you know, they, they can't go to the same doctors as other people, or we can go through all the problems. But um, stat- embracing the status quo is not going to, is, is not going to win this battle. It just reveals the uh, continuing tone deafness of, of the Democratic Party establishment. The, the head of the Center for American Progress, Neera Tandon, just wrote an op-ed, I think, uh, for the L.A. Times, if I'm not mistaken. And, of course, she's, she's, she's pulling the same Clintonian move of just, like, listing off the benefits of the ACA. And, actually, you guys are wrong. The ACA is good for you. Uh, you know, shut up, take your medicine, uh, you know, put the lotion on the skin, uh, whatever, right? Like, and this this shit's just not working. And so it seems to me that the establishment is just, as you mentioned, totally hamstrung on that. So it seems to be a good time to pivot around, pivot towards the question of universal health care for all. Um, let's pivot. Let's pivot towards that. A spoiler <laughs> alert. We were we were headed in this direction all along. Uh, we could have probably just scrapped the last 40 minutes and talked about universal health care, but uh, we wanted to cover the bases first. This is a very popular thing, really, if you look deeper. Um, the director of National Nurses United, Roseanne DeMauro, has been a champion for this policy for a very long time. Bernie Sanders, obviously. But if you look in other places, you might not expect, like certain conservative and libertarian think tanks have released studies over the past several years revealing that the United States' failure to, to have a universal health care program has actually been very bad for business in terms of like foreign direct investment and bringing foreign businesses over here. Because if think about it, I mean, if you're a Swedish industrialist, right, and you're thinking about putting production in the United States, well, all of a sudden you have to worry about providing health care for your workers, which is not something that you have to do in Scandinavia, and it's not something you have to do in much of Europe and elsewhere. Uh, so this is actually very bad for business. Um, that's one way to look at it. Of course, I know that's not the way you want to look at it. You want to look at it as healthcare as a fundamental human <laughs> right, right? So mm-hmm. we don't want to give we don't want to give into that narrative too much. Mm-hmm. No, I think, but that's fair. I think it's fair to look, look at all sides of it. Actually, my organization, uh, Physicians for National Health Program, uh, has an interesting video on their website um, that you can watch for free called Fix It, the business case for single payer. So uh, it, it, it's an element of the story that's worth that's worth talking about. Every employer I know, they dread the next hike in their insurance rates. The current costs of the system are becoming intolerable. Why are we creating an extra hurdle for business? It's tough enough out there. We looked at opening up a U.S. operation. 
If I had to increase my cost by over a million dollars because of insurance coverage costs, that alone would probably drive me to bankruptcy. Just imagine what it would mean for this country if we could cut our health care bill by 25%. Imagine what it would mean for our business community not to have this albatross around their neck. It would be extraordinary. Now, I totally recognize those clips will be uh, nauseating for some of you because we don't give a flying fuck about the business community. We want uh, full communism and all that. <laughs> and I'm with you in some respects. But that kind of argument coming from the business community highlights the total ridiculous nature of the Democratic Party's resistance to a single-payer healthcare system. So on the one hand, we have uh, the Democratic Party who's just wedded to this incredibly broken model and, you know, insanely tone deaf as they always are. And on the other hand, to uh, follow Doug Henwood's recent characterization, we have the Republican Party who, who are just total troglodytes. So who right now stands to save the day? Who are the political, for political forces that can bring about a different kind of health care policy? Well, I mean, there's different ways to look at this from the political party perspective, but also sort of from the grassroots perspective. So. I mean, this is how I would describe the battlefield right now. Uh, on the provider end, and providers are an important part of this because they're, I, you know, they, they're part of the system. And, and having complete opposition from providers, like happened with Harry Truman with the AMA, can 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 be, uh, you know, can kill something. Um, we are looking pretty good in the provider end. You mentioned the president of National Nurses United. So we have, I mean, the, the nurses are totally on board with single payer in terms of the, the, the unions. Um, from the physician side, uh, certainly there's a mix of opinions, but I will say that there was a poll that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine some years ago um, that found majority support among physicians. Uh, my group, um, uh, PNHP, is, is working to, 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 to grow that support even more so. Um, and then you look at the public support, um, and I alluded to a poll done last year by Gallup that found 58% support um, on, among the general public, of course, single payer. So we have the providers and the general populace, I think, in a good place. We need more. We want those numbers to be higher, but um, but we're in pretty good shape. Um, and so what actually is the way forward? I mean, the way I view this is as follows. I think there's going to be a big political gain and big political window of opportunity that's going to open um, as a result of what the Republicans are doing. Because what's going to happen in a few years, Trump care is going to be seen as a disaster. Mm -hmm. No one's going to want to go down that road. And um, Obamacare is going to be sort of this thing that used to be around. It isn't really quite with us anymore. And in any event, whether you liked it kind of or didn't like it, uh, it didn't f solve the problems. So what's left? I mean, there's not going to be anything left other than single payer. So I think uh, if the Democratic Party is smart, and I mean, I certainly would be, you know, it would be great if the Republican Party went for this, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, if the Democratic Party was smart, they would take this on as their next big cause. Mm -hmm. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Um, and part of the issue is the, the, you know, I talked about the basis of support. But what, what is the opposition? The opposition is corporate America. Um, although there are a business case to be made for single payer, particularly for manufacturers, um, and um, there is the insurance industry, which is hugely powerful, and even more powerful is the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which is opposed to single payer because they know that if we had single payer, we would use it to negotiate drug prices down on a countrywide level. Mm -hmm. So, so th that's how I lay out the, the battlefield, Adam. Um, you have good support among the general populace. You have support from 
nurses and from doctors and from providers. Um, you have a Democratic Party, which has not yet come around to embracing single payer. Uh, you have a lot of opposition centered around, uh, you know, uh, the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry and no doubt Wall Street as well. So I can't give you a sort of exact battle plan of how to move forward, but that's where the forces are currently aligned. So it sounds to me the real sort of pivot point here is the question of of fixing and managing costs, because what the ACA for all the ACA does provide the their their uh, Achilles heel in every instance is going to be the, just the tremendous runaway monopoly uh, costs and prices that, that mm-hmm. these providers are able, uh, as you meant, you mentioned the drug company, or I mean, we even talk about say the manufacturers of gauze, you know, you, you go to the hospital and you end up paying uh, $20 for a roll of gauze or $150 for one crutch. Right. And the idea is, well, you know, we have a competitive marketplace. So if you don't like the services that one hospital is providing, well, then you can go to another hospital. But it's funny how when you get hit by a bus and you're unconscious and you're being wheeled off to the nearest hospital to save your life, you're not able to, you know, pop your head off the gurney and say, excuse me, uh, I don't like the, com- the, com- the competitive edge of this particular facility. Take me to the one down the street. Right. Uh, nope. It's 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 quite difficult to do that um, or to say anything for that matter. Uh so yes, I'd agree. I mean, I think the whole idea—the whole idea of the free market—is going to bring down healthcare costs—is a complete and utter uh, red herring. It's never going to get us anywhere. I mean, and that's people have known that that free market doesn't work. This doesn't work in healthcare in the same way it works in other ways, or doesn't work in the ways uh, for a long time. So right. So I mean, the ACA didn't get costs under control. But keep in mind also, it's not just about overall spending. To me, it's—I I view this in a very distributional way as well. In other words, you could keep total spending the same as it is now, but if everybody paid into the system according to what their uh, financial means were, and if there was no cost at the point of use, then it would be much more manageable. We could manage, We could spend at the current percentage of GDP we now spend towards healthcare. I don't actually want to see that go down, to be totally honest with you, because I think it would be tough to really decrease that without decreasing some, some services. What I want to see is take what we're currently spending, Fund the system through progressive taxation so nobody pays more than what they, they can afford to pay and not have health care be priced at the point of use so that if you get hospitalized um, or you go to the doctor, you don't need to pay when you're there. And that's how it works in Canada and that's how it works in the UK with a couple of specific exceptions. So that's what we're proposing. I mean, a real – the end game here of a national health program will be a program that covers everybody uh, with comprehensive benefits – that is progressively funded through taxation, and that doesn't require you to spend money when you need it. And um, it's not a utopia; it can be done. It has been, it has been done, and maybe we can even do it. But if we got, you know, if we had the the will and the muscle, maybe we could even do it in a way that's better than it's been done in other countries. Um, but it's not, you know, this isn't. We're not reinventing the wheel either. It sounds to me that the having a, a universal healthcare system is would open up. Uh, some wiggle room for for other more progressive reforms across society. I've seen a a pretty well-sourced study mention that we could provide in the United States free college education for all using only the money that is saved in in administrative costs by something along the lines of three and a half months of a universal health care program. 
<laughs> I, I believe it. That's bonkers. I mean, we, it's bonkers because I forget what public education. I forget what the cost estimates are for free public education, but the cost estimates for administrative costs are like on the order of four to five hundred billion dollars a year. So, so it makes sense geez. to me. It's like a fraction of that. Right. So, I mean, this isn't just a question of health, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. a very essential question. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. can't necessarily save your life with a college degree, but you certainly can by going to the emergency room. But uh, but it seems to me that this is a fantastic gateway opportunity for progressives and folks on the left to start Mm -hmm. advocating for more progressive policies across the board. And and maybe that's that's why this is so dangerous to some of the establishment Democrats who are are wedded to the the sort of uh, socioeconomic and political alignments of today. Yeah, I agree. But this is such a – it is an issue that affects everybody and it is an issue that, that inspires such passion and that affects all of us and not in our own lives but in the lives of our family and our friends. Uh, if I was a smart Democrat, I would embrace single payer right now. I think it's a winning uh, idea and I think that um, – why they don't, why individuals don't, is multifactorial and, and probably speaks to some of the things you were saying. But this is a winning, this is a winning um, message politically in today's day and age, especially now that the ACA is sort of behind us, right? I mean, there's no ACA to promise anymore. There's no, that's done. So the ACA is, is you know, it, I, I'm happy to talk about the gains of the ACA. I'm not, I don't hesitate to describe them and to describe the ways people benefited. But it left too much undone, and no one wants to – You know, in four years from now, Adam, no one's going to say you – know, it's not going to be a winning political slogan to say we'll go back to 2016, right? I mean no one's – like that's not going to win you an election. <laughs> I'm going to have to stop you there because I, you know, I'm broadly in favor, but um, I read an article on Vox by Zach Beauchamp mm-hmm. uh, who, who convinced mm-hmm. me that, uh, that you're actually a racist and you're a misogynist because you're, you're pushing <laughs> – I thought no, you said no, this no, was going to be a friendly interview. Hear, no, hear me out. I'm calling you out. I'm I'm so woke. Uh, after I read this article, I was so woke. I didn't sleep for days. Uh, Zach Beauchamp uh, argues in Vox from uh, earlier this week that there are no easy answers. Why left wing economics is not the answer to right wing populism. And he goes on to talk about how universal show, social programs are not the answer to our problems of racism and and and, and misogyny and so on and so forth. But I mean this is complete bullshit and we know it. It's garbage. It's a hit piece from the center uh, to the left. But this is really the way that the, the mainstream Democrats are operating right now and it it's 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 I almost called it thinly veiled, but it's not even thinly veiled. It's blatant uh, it's a blatant defensive mechanism to 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 try to hold on to these failing policies. It's going to be a long struggle. I've seen that article. I haven't read it, but I've sort of heard about sort of the commentary around it. I mean, first of all, I think you embrace the policies that you think would make the world a better place. And then you figure out a way to make those arguments persuasive to the the place you live. I mean, to me, this isn't – it's almost Machiavelli. I don't know exactly what his argument was. I have a sense of it. But, you know, these are the policies that we're advancing, not just on healthcare, but on other progressive left issues, um, are are the things that we think are going to make this world more worth living in and that are going to improve people's lives and their health and their well-being and their happiness. And so we need to find a way to make those arguments palatable to, 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 to the countries that we live in. And Luckily, it's not that difficult because, I mean, 
the reality is that these are popular programs. I mean, I don't know how many times we can say this. I mean, Medicare is popular. Uh, universal health care polls really well. Single payer po- polls really well. You know, what doesn't poll well is the sort of um, nonsense libertarian economic policies, uh, uh, free market policies. No one really believes in them. And that's why the right lies. I mean, if they – if these, if, if left-wing ideas weren't popular, then the right, then the right wouldn't have feel a need to steal our language. And why is Trump saying I'm going to cover everybody? You know, why does Ryan use the term universal access? They're sort of cribbing our language to put a veneer of egalitarianism onto their repressive policies, and that's how I break it down. And I think that that just proves the point that what we're fighting for and what we believe in is, in fact, um, what people want. And so um, I think they're winning political ideas. Well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. So let's start. Let's end off on a positive note, if we possibly can. Tell us about <laughs> tell us about some of the initiatives that uh, your organization, Physicians for a National Health Program, are uh, under undertaking right now, and, and maybe how some of our listeners can find out more about that. How how they can get involved. Um, you know, we want to stop short of you know call your congressperson or something like that. But uh, what's a more tangible, hands on, grassroots way that our listeners can get involved? Absolutely. So, so my organization, Physicians for National Pro- Health Program, as its name suggests, is largely a sort of physician-centered movement. That being said, we have uh, members from other fields and who are not in the healthcare field altogether. So I would encourage people to check out our website, pnhp.org. There's a wealth of resources. We do, um, members of our organization do research. Um, we do advocacy. We um, are, again, our focus is more within the healthcare field, but we, we work outside of it. And But that being said, I would say that this is a much broader movement. Um, and so there's a role for all of us in, in, in a variety of organizations. There's an organization, Healthcare Now, that uh, is sort of more uh, just geared to the general population. But there's, you know, every time I speak with someone, I hear that uh, people are getting passionate about healthcare organi- organizing in their own groups. I mean, you know, Democratic Socialists of America seems to be focusing more on this issue, uh, and uh, var- basically every political group. It's such it's it's such a critical issue, and it affects all of us. So I would say is. You know, look to the organizations you're a part of and see what they're doing with healthcare. Look to organizations you might want to join that are in this fight already. Uh, consider starting a new organization if something doesn't exist. That uh, you know, I don't know if you're in a particular field or you know you're then 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 maybe a new organization is needed to to bring together people um, who are single payer supporters in other areas. And then we're going to need to link this to a broader coalition, and that's in progress. But that's a bigger story. Adam, that's about the the rejuvenation of the American left, and that's something that's well beyond what we're going to talk about today. It's a, it's a question of political parties. It's a question of the rejuvenation of organized labor and all these other things that we're going to need to draw on to make this actually a successful campaign. So, yep, it's sort of a lame answer, perhaps. I did not tell anyone to call their congressman, uh, but that's fine, too. <laughs> and uh, I think we need uh, more grassroots activism, and uh, we need to think about um, the overall power of the left in this country as well. Well, I love that answer. Uh, forging that new left agenda is one of the prime reasons uh, why we started this podcast. So that is something we will be continuing to look into. Uh, one one additional idea is uh, the Center for American Progress, this mainstream democratic establishment outlet, is uh, eyeballing uh, their uh, ideas conference. Uh, 
which is meant to mimic uh, CPAC, uh, the conservative conference that takes place once a year. And I think, you know, what, what, what our side needs to do is we need to mob that conference and we need to, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not insinuating that folks can take over the Democratic Party in a traditional sense, but we certainly cannot let them off the hook. We need to continue putting pressure on them in the way that the Sanders movement has done. Uh, and that, I think that's certainly the way forward. And Adam Gaffney, thank you so much for joining us today. You've given us a lot of information. Uh, you've filled in a lot of gaps for me, certainly. And we look forward to having you on the show to talk more about this in the future. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun, and it was a great exchange. Great. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in to the Dead Pundit Society. I have a couple thank yous really quickly. I'd like to thank Melissa eckert Garriga. She's a friend of mine, and she pointed me to Adam Gaffney's work, and she's the reason why I was able to get Adam on the show. He's a great guest. I think he's going to be a good friend of the show for future efforts to fight for single-payer universal health care. It is one of the most important things we can do right now. So signing off once more, this is Adam from the Dead Pundit Society. Enjoy Otis McDonald on your way out. We'll see you next week. Peace. Otis, you crazy mother... 